0: Welcome to the Motorsport Magazine Podcast. I'm Samarth Canal, staff writer, and today we've got Karen Chandock. Hello, how are you doing? We've got Features Editor Simon Aaron. Hi there. And we've got Production Editor Rob Ladbrook joining us. Hello, everyone. Excellent. Uh, Karen Chandock's come all the way down from snowy English countryside to join us. We're very grateful for that, and we have a ton to talk about. Just firstly, I wanted to mention that he's gonna join us for our F1 pre- season preview evening in March. And uh, that's sponsored by Footman James and Classic and Sports Finance. So uh, I'm sure we'll touch on that later. But Karen, firstly, um, thank you for joining us. And what have you got planned this year in terms of Williams heritage, any sports car racing? Are you jumping back into the seat?
1: Yeah, well, first of all, thanks for having me. Always a pleasure to come down here. Um, and you've made me an extremely powerful coffee, so I'm going to be bouncing off the walls for the rest of the afternoon. So you are
2: expecting <laughs> HRT coffee. has given you Williams-Renault, hasn't he? Basically, yeah yeah, yeah, yeah.
1: yeah. yeah, it's a full V10 in that <laughs> one, yeah. Um, no, it's it's always nice to come down and have a chat. Uh, yeah, I mean, I'm going to be travelling to most of the Grand Prix's with Sky um, you know, for the Formula One coverage, so that, that takes a big chunk of the year. Uh, with Williams, we... We're in the process of building up um, two very special cars which I can't tell you about at the moment but one in particular uh, is is going to be more powerful than that coffee and I'm very very excited about so um, all they'll be revealing f- in a little while but also we've got some other projects we've got some interesting other um, activities planned around heritage uh, all of which will you know will start to roll out uh, sort of from march onwards um, publicly. And you know the business is is growing. We've got new clients, and that just means more cars for me to to test and shake down, and um, to help grow that business. So that's good fun. Um, still managing a couple of young Indian drivers. Uh, Arjun Maini is uh, going to be doing a bit of sports cars this year. Um, Kush is uh, you know racing in the Formula Renault Euro Cup, well the, or whatever it's called nowadays, Formula Renault something new from I know, let's call it. But I, just, I just call it Euro Cup anyway. Um, so yeah, they're, they're doing okay. And um, yeah, you know, bits and pieces of, of other stuff, fifth gear, you know, late in the summer, and so back for another season of that, hopefully. Um, yeah, enough to keep me out of trouble. How
2: do you, how do you describe yourself nowadays? Are you Karun Chandok racing driver? Or are you Karun Chandok motor racing pundit?
1: Uh, I wear many hats, I suppose. Um, you know, I th- ultimately, uh, uh, you know, I think the reason I, I do all the other stuff is because I'm a racing driver to start with. I think that that's the foundation to my career really is, and that has sort of given me the the experience and the credibility to do to do all of these other things. So yeah, I think fundamentally that's still the basis. But over and above the driving, um, you know, I now. I've got a, a media career that's building in in print and podcasts and uh, and obviously television is the main thing, um, but also consultancy stuff. You know, you know, I'm working. I did a lot of work with when Bernie had the Indian Grand Prix. My dad and I ran the Grand Prix for him for that time. You know, work with different manufacturers. Uh, I ran the GT Academy program for Nissan and PlayStation in India at the time. Um, you know some other driver talent hunts, including the truck racing hunt for Tata, Uh, you know, so there's lots of other consultancy stuff, and and also I'm doing lots with the FIA now, you know, I'm a member of the driver's commission since since the start back in 2013, and off the back of that, you know, I go to the single seater commission meetings, I was, um, you know, uh, part of the driver grading committee to do the 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 much uh hated (laughs) driver grading system for for sports cars at gt racing which gave me a lot of headaches but um you know so i enjoy having a a dabble in all all sorts of you know areas of the sport
2: what i want to know is because all you've been tweeting about recently is how quickly you can change a nappy um how the hell do you find time to change nappies when you seem to have a you know 58 different jobs
1: it I'm fatherhood. It tends to happen at four in the morning. <laughs> um, yeah, I'm down to a minute forty-six, but uh, I'm am struggling. I'm struggling to get quicker than that at the moment because he's he's being less cooperative. But now it is great fun. Um, you know, it's uh, it's it's less than two months now, but it's been it's been
2: an adventure. So no cadet cart just yet.
1: Oh God no. No. I've I've actually restarted playing tennis, which I stopped playing for about thirty years because I figure tennis racket and balls is infinitely cheaper <laughs> than a go kart. And if he wants to go play golf then well I'll have to find some other maybe Peter Dumbreck or somebody could go teach him play golf. But I'll uh, I'll try everything possible to keep him away from motor racing.
2: <laughs> He's got a motor racing mad grandfather as well, though, hasn't he?
1: And great grandfather, uh, and great grandmother. My great, you know, my there grandm- was really no hope. <laughs> has. No, I know. My grandma used to race as well. Um, so, yeah, we'll see. We'll see. My, my, I mean, you know, my brother escaped. He managed to. He managed to avoid motor racing in general until I started racing GP two in places like Monaco and stuff. And then suddenly got interested again, funnily enough. But uh, yeah, we'll see.
2: Just talking of the of young yeah, yeah, well, I mean, obviously extreme youngsters in this case, but. Just thinking about motor racing in general when i was growing up in the 1970s it always used to perplex me that britain which is a little small island had you know lots of grand prix drivers but vast countries india china russia you know weren't represented at all and then as you get a bit older and you find out a bit more you discover there's no motor racing infrastructure i mean I just what was the infrastructure like in india when you started racing how easy i know you had your dad was a rally champion and there was a family involvement but i mean how easy was it for you to get involved at your stage and have things changed in the last sort of 17, 18 years?
1: I think I was very lucky for, for the reason you mentioned. You know, I grew up in a in a motorsport family. My grandfather used to race, and he started the ASN in India, um, the federation, which is now obviously part of the FIA. Um, my dad raced from 1972 onwards and did some rallying. You know, he had a an ex-Elio uh, De Angelis Chevron Formula 2 car that he used to race. again, and, and they sort of had an all-in-one category, so he'd be in this... F2 car against Vijay Malia in an Ensign F1 car against someone in Atlantic, in a Formula 4, and they'd all sort of go around the country racing on, on runways, disused, you know, World War II runways, but it was a very, um, you know, I don't like to use the word amateur, but in the way, you know, if you compare it to the professional categories of racing that you had in Europe at the time, it was, a, you know, far beyond behind that. But, you know, they had huge crowds. I, you know, I still remember going to watch my dad race um, a place called Sholavaram outside Madras. They used to get sixty-five, seventy thousand 70,000 people there to watch these guys race on a T-shaped circuit with a couple of chicanes. And they'd be, you know, they'd be betting going on in the car park and it was absolutely bonkers. You know, cover page on all the newspapers and magazines and it, it was um, incredible stuff at the time. But, you know, when you talk about Infrastructure towards building a Formula One driver, it, it was way behind. I think by the time we got to to my level of racing, you know, we still had only one racetrack, um, which was in in Madras on the outskirts outskirts of Madras, which again my um, my granddad and a couple of his buddies designed on a paper napkin sitting in a bar, <laughs> and then called <laughs> someone from FISA in Paris to come down and certify it, and that's basically the circuit that was built. Um, But I was lucky, it was an hour from my house, so I could, you know, I learned how to drive there. When I was nine years old, I learned how to drive a road car there, and I I spent all of my free weekends going up with my dad, and uh, by that stage, he'd he'd sort of, he was driving less and less and starting to run teams more, Um, and we we ran a Formula 3 team, we had people like Steve Robertson, and Warren Hughes, and Hilton Cowie, and all these sort of people come and drive for us. Uh, So I grew up in that environment, you know, watching racing, and, but... You know, I, I uh, following motorsport was very difficult at the time. I still remember the first live F one race was the 1993 Spanish Grand Prix, which um, you know, which is amazing to think about because I, I've been watching races since '87, and it was because we had a friend of ours, uh, Martin Stone, who was a partner at Carly Motorsport and not, used to be at least. Uh, he used to record these VHS tapes, so I would watch the British Grand Prix in like October or something. And we get <laughs> copies of, uh, you know, magazines that would arrive six, eight weeks after the race. So I read about the Phoenix race in the summer. So <laughs> things like that. But, um, you know, I I just, m- the interest in the in the sport just grew from a very young age. And um, that's where I started.
2: Because I remember, I think the first time we met was probably at Spa in 2007, when you scored a GP2 with the Durango. It was one of the Bridgestone lunches, and you were telling me that... Um, whenever there was a, a gap in the sporting schedules on Indian TV, instead of doing anything like show a motor race, it was always a, a replay of a India versus Australia test in 1979, 80 or something. But that just absolutely dominated to the exclusion of almost all other international sport.
1: Yeah, completely. I mean, you know, to give you an example, when uh, Bernie wanted to put Formula One on terrestrial TV in 2000, I think it was 2002, three something like that. And he called my dad up and said, I wanted to get this done, want it on terrestrial TV, I'll give you the rights for free. And we went, Wow, this is mega. This is this is it. This is my racing budget sorted here. I'm gonna <laughs> I'm gonna you know, we're gonna be able to sell these rights f- for a fortune. And what we didn't realize is Bernie had already done the research and worked out he couldn't get it on terrestrial <laughs> TV for free. And we had to pay a fortune to the broadcaster to put it on, effectively buying advertising time. So after three years and a lot of work of trying to sell <laughs> advertising, I think we made about five grand on it or something, which uh, <laughs> so it, it didn't pay for anything, really <laughs> racing wise. But um, yeah, it's it, it took a long time. And I mean, I never did a go kart race in my life. And I think, and really, when I got to F1 in 2010, I bought a, a Rotax kart and I would be out there twice a week in it. And only then did I realize how much I missed. You know, there's so much that a Lewis or a Nico Rosberg or whatever these guys have been karting since they were in their nappies. You know, they learned so much about the feel of a new tire and how to extract that extra bit of grip and how to drive in different conditions and, and the wheel-to-wheel racing as well. I think, uh, you know, certainly people like Narain and myself who came from India, um, I think we, we missed a huge part of that in our careers.
0: Is the infrastructure there now though in India That you know, emulating Germany, the UK, even Finland. Is is there a karting infrastructure there? Are kids being brought up to learn the tricks of the trade early on?
1: I don't think it's fair to compare India to a European country. I think in terms of motorsport infrastructure, I think you need to compare us with Malaysia and Indonesia and and, you know countries in that part of the world. It has gotten better. You know, we do have now multiple single seater championships. We do have um, you know two stroke karting and, and both cadets juniors uh, and seniors sorry all three categories so you know th- there is now a basis where kids are able to compete india is a very big country uh, and geographically it's really difficult because you know you've got three proper kart tracks which can run proper you know Rotax or you know imei or whatever and um you know for a kid let's say in delhi who wants to be a racing driver they can't just drive there. You know, it's not like you live in London and you drive out to Shennington or Wilton Mill and do your event after school and get back and you, you're back at school on Monday. You know, in India, you've got to fly, an 8 or 10 or 12-year-old isn't going to fly on their own, so a parent got go, has got to go along. There's a cost to all of that. and So it is It is much harder still. And, you know, whether that improves, it's, it's not really growing at a rate high enough, I think. And And I think that comes back to Simon's point of, sitting here today, why we've only still had two people out of 1.2 billion race in Formula One and only one race at Le Mans. And, you know, it's a very small minority.
2: I mean, when you were competing in Formula Maruti, your first single seater in 2000, was that, at the time, was that just a bit of fun for you? Or did you actually, were you actually harboring dreams of being able to compete internationally?
1: It's really funny, actually, and, and it's only when I got to my mid-twenties I realized that I was unique, because ever since I was a kid, I wanted to be a racing driver, and I became a racing driver, and it's only when I sort of got to my mid-twenties, and I started meeting friends of mine who, who you know, finished school, went to their undergrad degrees, worked for a year or two, still hadn't quite found what was their calling in life, and what was their sort of ideal career, only then I realized that actually I was quite unique, ever since I was I don't know two, three, four. Uh, as far as I can remember, I wanted to be a racing driver. I, I didn't want to do anything else. So, yeah, I, I mean, it was interesting because when I was fifteen, I was I was a fat little kid. You know, I'd hit ninety six kilos, so I wasn't small. And basically, I turned sixteen in January two thousand, and I and that was the time um when you could get a race license only at 16 now it's now become 15 of course so i went to my dad i went well i'm 16 now i'd like to be a racing driver and he went, he just looked at me and said no chance <laughs> uh, and uh we we made a deal that if i lost 25 kilos then you know we we would talk about it again uh and i, I went on a massive you know lifestyle change I, I stopped eating all the crap that i used to and started exercising and i I lost 26 kilos in 10 months can i can
2: can ask you for a few tips afterwards it's just (laughs) math honestly
1: it's is purely mathematics because i'm an i'm very much a numbers person um lee McKenzie will tell you all about it. i'm constantly (laughs) sitting with a spreadsheet in front of me working out all sorts of things but um you know i just did the math i was like this is the number of calories i consume this is the amount i burn and if one outweighs the other then i lose Mm -hmm. weight if one the other if it's the other way you gain weight it's just math and that's that was it so my dad could then see that i, I was committed to it and you know i was i was putting in the hard work so and all that happened in that year 2000 i started racing i was still in my final year of of high school uh doing my a levels at the time and in india you you have to do uh, a mandatory of four a levels um and i i ended up doing five but it's
0: uh yeah so it was a busy year trying to lose weight start trying to be a racing driver and five a levels I must say I've heard of very few Indian parents asking their kids to lose weight. Whenever I go home and see my family, I've always, I've, you know, <laughs> I'm always too thin. So that you're very lucky to have health conscious parents but,
2: but, but I mean, that's, that's like losing two thirds of Anthony Davidson in the space of 10 <laughs> <laughs> months. I mean, so how, how is that possible?
0: Yeah, yes, basically. <laughs>
1: Yeah. Uh, but no, it was, uh, and, and that's that's where I, I kicked off. And, uh, you know, for me, racing in India was, for, I did one year, I, was, I won the Indian championship. And at the time, there was a sponsor called JK Tire who paid for a, a scholarship for me to race in Asia, in Formula Asia in 2001. And um, and then they, they carried on backing me all the way until until Formula One.
3: I mean, when you first came to Europe and did your first European race, was it much of a culture shock from from what you were used to? Or was the level comparable to what you what you started out in?
1: Well, first of all, I, I landed in the UK on the 1st of February 2002. And I, I, we'd been here on family holidays, and I'd been here to watch racing. You know, I'd been to watch Narain race in Formula 3 and, you know, shared a hotel room in a travel lodge at Junction 10 of the M40 and <laughs> things like that when he was racing at Silverstone. And, uh, you know, so obviously I'd been here. But coming coming on the first of February, when it was getting dark at three in the afternoon, and you just what is going on? And and the team was um, actually I'd come in November the previous year to do a test with Carlin, and it was down at Pembry, and I'd never heard of Pembry, never been before. And Trevor sent sent me an email with the directions. And it was just a one-line email. And I thought, oh, "Can't be that far." And it basically said, <laughs> "It basically said M4 Junction 48, follow the signs." It was only when I got, I left Heathrow and got on the got on the M4 and realized, "Oh wait, hang on a second, this is Junction Two or something." So <laughs> it, uh, it only, but yeah, I mean, you know, it was a, there, it was a huge culture shock. I'd never driven with cold tires. I'd never driven in the wet. I'd never, you know, had the level of competition. That you have in, and that you know, that was a still a time where British F3 was was proper British F3. You know, when I think back, 2004, the season we did there, the drivers that were in it, you know, you look at where they've all gone on now. You you had Degrassi, PK, Adam Carroll, uh, you know, Ernesto Viso, Will Power, um, Will Davison. You know, there was so many good drivers, uh, lots of whose whose names escape me at the moment. Um, you know, the the level was so strong at the time and I learned a hell of a lot. You know, that those those two and a half years I did with T Sport before I ran out of money, um, was really good. And and just travelling to all the British circuits, you know, you know, when you're at and also I think coming from a country like India, you know, I, I could have I, I you know, you could have carried on living a life out there and enjoying the thirty degree sunshine all year round. And suddenly, you know, I'm on my own in a town you know i lived in brackley i didn't know anybody there i'd gone from a city of 11 million people to a town of eleven thousand people uh middle of nowhere really and uh, all of a sudden you know you're on your own and you're 18 years old but i think that that's where the motivation comes in and i think that's why a, a lot of the non-european drivers you know you you get mentally very very strong because you come here and you've got to get off your bum and you've got to go training you it's it's totally counterintuitive to what you're used to, to be out there running in the cold, wet weather in March. But you know, if you're not doing it, then somebody else is. And um, I think mentally, you know, in that two and a half years, I probably aged 15 years. You know, I I grew up really.
3: I mean, it must have been almost like you you came in to that year because a lot of the guys will have been known beforehand, before they turned up. And then you come in as... Like you say, fresh, fresh to Europe, and being from a country that wasn't then known for a kind of motorsporting history. I mean, did you find it a, a struggle at all? Did you feel a bit more pressure to prove yourself? Or
1: there, there was a there was a lot more pressure from home. You know, because uh, at the time, Naren hadn't yet competed in F one, so India hadn't yet produced a Formula One driver. Uh, that that came in two thousand and five. So there was a lot of pressure on on. Both of us, and there wasn't, uh, you know, a huge amount of knowledge, I would say. You know, I would go off and do, I remember going to do PR events in in some city that a go-kart track, there was one which stands out. And I remember the journalists, and this was from the Times of India, which is, you know, highest circulated newspaper in the country. And the journalist said to me, he says, oh, what's the difference between this and a Formula One car? And, you know, he's standing at a rental go-kart track. And, <laughs> you know, I, and, uh, I, and I'm, I'm not, I'm generalizing here. There were obviously a lot of journalists who had more knowledge. But from a from a broad perspective, the, the knowledge level still wasn't there. But all they knew was India hasn't yet had a Formula One driver. And the expectations were that, you know, there's a lot of pressure on one of these two guys to do it. And so, and also for, from a financial standpoint, you know, we my family begged, borrowed, stole, remortgaged everything that they could. Uh probably they didn't steal, I should just clarify <laughs> that. I was, gonna, I was <laughs> gonna ask you what they'd stolen. Yeah. <laughs> no, they didn't do that. But, you know, they s they they, they was you know, my mum was selling paintings and all sorts of things just to so I could have an extra set of tires so I could go to go testing. And then, you know, we got to two thousand and five, I remember, and you look at it and halfway through the year, Nelson Piquet Jr. had done twice the number of test days and he'd had twice the number of sets of tires and you just go, Phew, I just can't compete with that. You know, you just can't and if, at that stage we just completely run out of money and the bank managers on the phone and all sorts in a, in a very Nigel Mansell-esque way. But um, yeah, there, you know, it wasn't easy. And and you know, we had, we had sponsors and we had certain backers but it, it didn't cover the budget. Uh, I think that's where the pressure was really high. Was, you know, you you were every set of tires, you, you know. You, I, I, and now, in hindsight, when I look back at that phase, actually getting out of the pressure cooker of Europe after the two and a half years, uh, and going to Asia um, for uh, to race in two thousand six, where again the level was lower, but it just allowed allowed me to take take a breather you know, get my energy back, start to enjoy my racing again because I think between 2003, 4, 5, um, you know, the the pressure was immense and, you know, the debt was off the chart and, and that just added a huge family pressure.
2: So how did you recover from the financial meltdown to being able to buy your way into GP2 in 2007?
1: <laughs> it, was, it was interesting because, uh, you know, Uh, At the end of 2005, I'd done a bit of A1GP. I'd done a bit of World Series by Renault, um, you know, and and just completely, that was it. No money at the end. And then Renault started up this championship in Asia with Renault V6 cars. And the promoter, um, David Sonnenscher, got in touch with me and said, Look, you know, we're starting up this championship. Do you want to come and do it? And I, and, uh, I, I managed to get some sponsorship from a. From a couple of companies in, you know, uh, one in India, one in Asia, and and they cover the budget. And so I went off and did that for a year. And actually, Renault, you know, Renault put up a bit of prize money as well, which was quite handy. But in September that year, I came to see Bernie. And I said to him, I said, look, I'm off, I'm racing in Asia, but obviously that's not going to get me to F1. I need to be back in Europe. Do you have any ideas? And he went, "Mm, I'll tell you what. When you, when you win that championship, give me a call. And I waited till November, won the championship. So I called him up and said, oh yeah, won the championship now, what do you think? And he went, oh yeah, 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 leave it with me. And then didn't hear anything. So we've gone through all through Christmas and you know, call him a couple of times. Yeah, yeah, I'm still, I'm working on it, nothing. And then we went all through you know, probably the first half of January, and I'm going, yeah, this is not happening now. You could see the GP2 grid, I'm online, I'm seeing the grid filling up, thinking this is just not happening. He had organized a test with Campos for me before, that's the one thing he did do, but then nothing came off the back of it. And I had then spoken to um, my friend Anthony Hyatt, who runs Double R Racing, and said, look, you know, I'm out of money, not gonna go racing, but I, I still wanna be involved in the sport, have you got any jobs for me? And he said, well, actually, I could probably do with the TM for this team. I'm looking for somebody to help run the team for me. So yeah, we could sort something out. So I was all ready to come back to the UK to to be an employee for his Formula 3 team. And at the end of January, Bernie called and said, right, I think there's a deal on the table. I think Red Bull are interested in doing something with you. So here's Danny Baha's number give him a call. Uh and then I you know at the time I so I didn't do the deal with helmet. I didn't you know I didn't speak to helmet at all. I spoke to Danny Baha who was there and and he put me on the Red Bull program. They were looking to expand the program. They wanted to have some other drivers from other parts of the world outside Europe. And and the timing worked and uh you know that <laughs> literally spoke to Danny, spoke to Bernie 3 days later I was on the plane to do a C- I was the last driver signed on the grid for 2007. 3 days later I went to Italy to seed it fit for Durango and off to Ricard for the test.
2: But it wasn't it wasn't a full Red Bull deal, was it just a patches and overalls kind of thing? No,
1: but they paid a good chunk mm. of the budget. So that that basically, you know, Bernie negotiated the deal with Durango. So I, I didn't actually know what the budget was. I had some Indian sponsors. He he said to me, he said, right, how much sponsorship have you got? I had that. And um, obviously he knew how much, uh, or I told him how much, you know, Danny was willing to put in from from Red Bull. And basically, he called Durango up and, and sorted the deal. So I, I, I never signed the contract. Uh, I'm very thankful to Bernie. He he was very, very helpful to me at that phase. And, um, you know, I'll, I'll always be grateful to him because that, that saved my career.
2: Can you remember the feeling on that Sunday at Spa? You first, I mean, of all places to score your first GP2 win.
1: Uh, I can, actually, because I, first of all, I remember being on the grid and Bernie and Flavio showed up on the grid together. And, uh, um, yeah, it it was a bit, you know, already I was sort of, you, you know, you're there you're on the front row. And I would had a couple of decent races earlier. I should have won in Istanbul and Kazuki Nakajima took me out with a handful of laps to go. Um, and then I think he apologized profusely afterwards, but it didn't really help. <laughs> <laughs> um, and I think, you know, we'd had a couple of other decent races. So I, I knew we were getting stronger as the year went on. And, uh, as far, you know, already you sort of, you're on the, you're on the front row of the grade, you're feeling a bit of pressure and then Bernie and Flav show up and Bernie says, you better win this. <laughs> and I went, all right. He says, yeah, Dietrich's in my bus. We're going to watch the race together. And I'm oh <laughs> God. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and, uh, yeah, no, fortunately, yeah, it was, it was a great, it was a good race. I, I still remember clearly, you know, coming up to La Source and I thought, yeah, I've, I've managed to get the tyres, I've managed the tyres a bit more than and Andy Suchek. I remember thinking, if I just give myself enough of a gap on the run down from La Source to Eau Rouge, I can be flat through Eau Rouge in, in the slipstream and not lose too much downforce. Uh, because at, at that time, you know, with the, the old, that was a first generation GP2 mm-hmm. car, on race tyres, race fuel, it wasn't comfortably flat in the slipstream. It was flat if you were in clean air, it wasn't comfortably flat. And I made sure I got a good toe through. Um, and, and when I went up to Lake I thought, right, I'm there on the outside, and uh, I'm just going to break as late as I could. I, I still remember the, you know, ev- every every frame of that that um, part of the lap to get him for the lead. And there's only three or four laps to go. And one of the first people I saw after the race was uh, our friend David Tremaine, You know, who's obviously one of the best journalists, and and.
2: I wouldn't yeah. say that. Well, you can do it. <laughs> but you
1: know he, he's uh, he's somebody that I, I uh, uh, whose opinion I greatly respected, and I remember him coming to me after the race saying, "Yeah, that was a, that was a proper move. Well done, chap." And he sort of I thought, "Okay, yeah, thanks." <laughs> <laughs> but uh, yeah, no, I was very very uh, good memories of that day.
2: I mean, you had a you went at Hockenheim as yep. well in GP two, but I mean, you had some. At monaco 2009 i mean you were oh. romping away with the sprint race now did you break the car or did the car break itself remind me no
1: the drive shaft broke um, yeah but had you hit something no, no 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 not a mark on the wheel rim not a mark on the tires nothing and that that remains probably the biggest disappointment of my career um you know we as you say i i'd gotten, gotten into the lead at the start past who was a bit of a specialist round Monaco? He was, yeah, you know, he, was, he was quick there in any category. He crushed
2: every other circuit, but Monaco. He, was, he was blindingly quick. Yeah, yeah God knows how.
1: Um, but you know, I I pulled three seconds on him, and we had pulled nearly twenty seconds over Jerome Dambrosio and Nico Hulkenberg and people like that who were who were in the train behind. And you know, we were gone into the distance, and at that stage. You know, Pastor said to me, he says, I just, at that point, I thought, I'm just going to settle for a second. And, and equally, I was going, right, you know, this. I'm happy with the pace, no risks. And couldn't believe it. I came out of um, Anthony Nose onto the start finish straight, and it just, it lost drive. And over time, what transpired was that it, I was with a new team, Ocean Racing Technology, and uh, it transpired that they'd changed one of the drive shafts. F- before the race in Monaco but normally what you should do is change As both. Pair, yeah. A- and and that's what happened the one they hadn't changed um snapped. So uh, yeah, re- really gutted. I I uh, had a lot of tequila that night.
2: <laughs> well, cuz I did an interview with you the following day we did with a tra- for a travel company we did a talk and um, you seemed quite chipper. D- the the tequila hangover didn't didn't last. <laughs> I was probably still a I. Possible. <laughs> <laughs> um, moving on from GP2 to Formula One, I mean, you never had a crack in a proper with all due respect to Caterham and HRT yeah, absolutely. In, a, in a i mean your year with HR2 or half year with HRt in 2010 was that good for the character or terrible for the or terrible for the morale or both: no uh,
1: look, ultimately it's, it, it was a culmination of a dream. You know, and and that's something that, you know, being on being on the grid and um, arriving at the paddock as a Formula One driver, that that'll you know whatever happens from that day forward, I could call myself a Formula One away. driver. Yeah, yeah. you you'll always be a Formula One driver. Uh, and so that to me was it was a culmination of a dream. It was it was huge news out in India. I remember my my brother called me up and said, you know, when the news got announced, I, I was alone in in Murcia in Spain when they did the launch. My family were all back in India. My brother called me and said, you can't believe your dad's in floods of tears watching the news and all this kind of stuff. So, you know, it was it was great for for us as a family. Um, and then, obviously, it all it all imploded into a mess. And, and it was a real shame because I remember going to the seat fit at Dallara and I met Jeff Willis and my race engineer, Richard Connell, who's now at, at HPP. And we went along and had a look... Um, you know, with with the designers, Ben Nagatangalu was there, who's now at, obviously at Haas with Dallara. And, you know, it showed me all the drawings that they had. And they said, look, the car that's going to the launch in Murcia, the hotel, is just a launch car. Unfortunately, because we're late, that looks like that's what you're going to have for the first four races. But there were 60 points of downforce there. And, you know, Dallara, Dallara built good cars. You see what they're doing with, with Haas, obviously yeah. got Ferrari support. But, you know, you look at the other categories, they do build good cars. And it was a real shame because they had a car there with 60 points of downforce, which would have put us into Torosso territory. You know, you'd have been a very respectable, you know, front of the new teams, back end of the midfield teams. But for various reasons, uh, obviously between Colin Collis and the Carabantes and Delora there was a fallout, um, which, you know, involves probably three different podcasts for me to, <laughs> <laughs> for me to go into. Um, and the updates never came. And unfortunately that, you know, as as things went along then then you know the money in Spain started to dry up, and they needed financial backing, so that cost me um you know they needed you know they got sack on into the car um for and but yeah it was it was a character building season but you know th- i've got f I've, I've still got very good memories of it you know going going to Bahrain for my first race uh, I remember Michael Schumacher was the first driver who came up and shook my hand as we were doing the these FIA the medical checks and it was his first race back off you know yes. with Mercedes after his little break and he came and shook my hand and he said welcome to formula 1 good luck and I thought yeah you're Michael Schumacher you were my you were one of my heroes when I was a kid he didn't need to do it but I thought it was really really nice of him
2: I reckon he was watching formula Maruti races on, telev- on television 10 years before and that's what I reckon
1: oh I don't know <laughs> I don't know
2: <laughs> but I mean one of the things that sticks in my mind about that particular weekend was arriving in the paddock on Wednesday or Thursday and you know watching all of the established teams just going through the usual preseason prep, and then HRT, not so much Lotus Caterham, uh, but also Marussia Virgin. Um, I went into the Marussia Virgin garage and you know, everybody, including John Booth, the team principal, they're down on their hands and knees with fret sores and hacking bits of carbon. And they're still, I mean, your car, I think, was just about the last to be well, finished, I, wasn't it? Wasn't it? Yeah, you I did, uh, you the didn't first get out until Saturday or something. Yeah, the of, first
1: lap I did was qualifying. Yeah. You know which wasn't really qualifying it was a shakedown it was an installation <laughs> we did an installation lap in qualifying you know with 60 kilos of fuel or something but it's um yeah that was a character building weekend definitely and I, I changed in and out of my overalls probably a dozen times because i kept saying yep yep yep, the car's ready oh wait it's not <laughs> and it, it just it kept going back and forth but um yeah it, it was bizarre
2: but it, it was like a it was to me it was a bit like a sort of old school nineteen seventy sort of formula one weekend with just Everybody mucking, you know, bigger sized teams obviously, but everybody mucking in and it was just, there was, there was a real kind of sense of spirit down that end of the pit lane with, with yeah. everyone fighting to get the cars ready.
1: Yeah, I mean the, the mechanics, the hours they did, you know, they were doing 48 hour shifts and you're sometimes worried. These guys, you know, I'd see them, the guy would be in the cockpit to bleed the brakes and he'd be, he'd <laughs> fall asleep, you know, in that time when they'd sort of, you know, need to open and close the, the canopy nipple. So... You know, they're just exhausted. God knows how they did it. And they'd had to do it again when we got to Australia. They're doing, you know, 40, 50-hour shifts. It was just extraordinary. But it's a real shame, you know, on the whole, with the, with the whole HRT team, because if you look at the people we had in the race engineering office, you know, they'd assemble a good team of people. You know, Jeff Willis is now at Mercedes. Tony Chikorea left and became a chief race engineer at Ferrari. Uh, as I said, Richard Connell is now at um, HPP. Um, Chevy Pujala is now chief engineer at Sauber. Um, you had Stephen Mitis, who became chief race engineer on the LMP1 Porsche program. Uh, you know, you had a lot of good people involved in the in the in the race team, and you had Dallara there, who who had the potential to build a good car. So, you know, there were a lot of good ingredients there. Unfortunately, just the the, the money from from Spain just you know just wasn't there to get the project through, um, you know, as, as it should have done. We see Formula
3: One grind down a lot of drivers if, if things aren't going their way and it's outside of their control. How do you keep your mentality? Yeah? Because it must be quite hard that first season because you, you must be there going, well, the car's not working, but I know I'm quicker than here. Why can't I get a chance to show it? How do you It is difficult.
1: It is difficult. Um, but ultimately, you know, your your point of reference is your teammate and your point of reference is the other people in similar situations. You know, we had, we had the odd race where I could beat timo or lucas you know i remember montreal had a good race um there and valencia was another good one uh, where i was able to beat one of the marussia cars which was for us was was a, our own little victory really um you know monaco was a pretty good race as well till L- yano ended up on my head <laughs> uh, you know we, we had those odd races and that, that sort of kept your kept your motivation up i think that the following year you know when when basically uh, you know, i'd done this deal with with Tony Fernandez and Lotus and um, you know the 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 politics in that team was just horrendous you know they it, it's a shame because again they had some good people um you know people like Dieter Gas, Jody Eginton. there's some really good people in there but they had all the politics of a big team in a small team and uh, you know it, it, i i in hindsight i I, I regret that experience you know and not doing the indian gp and stuff you know i I had a contract in place to do a certain number of races that year and then that didn't happen and then you know it took forever for tony i finally got compensated for it out of court from with tony because he knew you know i had a contract there um and we got it settled but it it was it really wasn't a fun year for me um you know, being a reserve driver there, I had a contract to do a whole bunch of Fridays and some testing, and it kept getting pulled from me. and And the you know the days weren't going well, and I wasn't enjoying it. And I was driving, I wasn't driving well either. Um, and I just constantly felt like um, just a spare part that nobody really wanted, you know. And it wasn't an, enjoy- an enjoyable experience, but I learned from it. And I think I think not getting the chance to do the Indian GP. Um, when, when I had a rock solid contract route and we had a lot of other stuff lined up around it that that was that was a huge blow um, and that was probably the only time in my life i have fallen out of love with formula one i, I didn 't watch a race for six months i, I didn 't watch another race till the middle of two thousand and twelve I completely fell out of love with formula one didn 't re- want to read about it didn 't want to know about it i thought that 's it I, I, I hated it at that time.
2: Well, that's just like going back to the early days when you're watching it six months late on VHS, surely. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. it was just a wheel turning full circle. Um, why, just, sorry, just, yeah, go just to
0: clear up for me, why did that chance get taken away from you then uh, in terms of the inner politics of the
2: team? Uh, t- Tony,
1: Tony and um, certain members of the team basically said they they didn't want to change the driver line up. They just wanted to keep Yano in the car. Um, the deal was that I would replace Yano for four races. Um um and and it just didn't happen so uh it is a shame and you know it uh again that's another team that had some good good elements to it and good people in it and you know r- race engineers and people that worked incredibly hard um and it's a shame that you know there's a lot of internal politics to it and and the the financial backing they were hoping to get from from the lotus brand didn't didn't materialize and they never quite were able to make the next step up so you know when, when you look at when you look at modern f1 you know the last new new startup before Haas to really make it was stuart grand prix really when you think about um and they they did it because they had a the huge backing from ford and you know i think it's um that makes what Haas have done all the more commendable really you know they've come at it with this different business model and, and made it work which is Really impressive.
2: As I said, it's very true because I mean BMW and Toyota both both came with massive investments, stayed around for four or yeah. five years, and won one race between them. Yeah, which is, you know which that's is why a bit of, a bit of luck as Lewis Clatter came in the pit lane in Canada.
1: Yeah, exactly. I mean, I I mentioned Stuart and I I purposely avoided Toyota mm-hmm. because I it's it's a very different model coming in as a no billion dollar yeah. manufacturer to a to a startup team.
2: Yeah. Um. So, I mean, do you think? I mean, the the one Grand Prix you did do in twenty eleven with in, in Germany. I mean, do you think? Basically your your performance suffered that weekend because all of the background stuff that was going on? No, I, I
1: just didn't I just didn't do a good job because, you know, the until that point I hadn't driven the car on the dry. Every time I had a um, you know, FP one session before that, it, immediately before Silverstone it it rained, Istanbul it rained, um I I was meant to do the Hereth test and then I didn't get to do the Hereth test. I was meant to do a Barcelona test, then I didn't do a Barcelona test. Um, you know I didn't get to do FP1 in Barcelona because they had some updates on the car so basically the first time I drove the slick Pirelli tyre I shunted the car in Melbourne which was my own fault of course but the first time I drove the slick tyre was an FP1 in in the Nürburgring and as we now know the Pirelli is a very different tyre to the Bridgestone so I don't think I fully got my head around it um, and you know it, it. I just got thrown in the deep end basically I remember as Tony walked to the grid in Silverstone he came to me and said, because I was meant to do races towards the end of the year. You know, we were talking about um, Japan, Korea, India, you know, sort of back end of the year. Uh, but he came to me as he was walking to the grid at Silverstone and said, I want to put you in the car for the Nürburgring next time out. How do you feel about it? And I went, yeah, I mean, I'm not going to say no, of course. <laughs> and, um, but, you know, in, in hindsight, it would have been nice to have done a bit of testing and, and uh, actually have driven the car on the driver before that. But, yeah, so, you know, there, there were, I, I don't think I did a particularly good job that weekend. Well, I know I didn't. But equally, I think there were plenty of circumstances that didn't help me either.
2: Um, you, you're among friends now, you can tell us. Were there any ever any opportunities to land a seat with a team slightly higher up the grid or... Or were the opportunities just not there? No,
1: I I think, you know, there were a couple of opportunities which I turned down to be uh, test drivers, reserve drivers, sim drivers to take that trim drive in 2011. You know, I think in 2010, I'd done a respectable job, you know, alongside Bruno and, uh, you know, I think I'd sort of established myself as a respectable, credible driver. And there were... You know, there were opportunities to become sort of simulator and, and test and reserve drivers, but the, the the draw of doing races, even if it was only going to be two or three or four races with Lotus, despite being at the back of the grid, you know, it was still going to be racing rather than simulator or, or testing. And and I went with that. And I think, you know, in hindsight, that, that broke some of the momentum for me. And, and after that, you know, I... I I went down the sports car route, and all of a sudden, I discovered this whole world of sports cars. And actually, Anthony Davidson was the first one who said to me in 2011 when I started to really hate F1. He, um, you know, I remember speaking to him, and he said, "You know what? You should really think about sports cars because you love it much more than you think." And he was absolutely right. You know, it's uh, I discovered a whole world of racing, which is which has been very enjoyable.
3: I was going to say, was it like a, a almost like a breath of fresh air going into that environment?
1: Yeah, I mean, I, I I approached the first half of the year quite badly. I think I arrived with my sort of single seater, selfish F1 mentality. Uh, fortunately, I had two good teammates in David Brabham and Peter Dumbreck, who who have since you know carried on being very good friends of mine. Uh, and I think I, I really annoyed them to start with, but eventually they they got me to to understand the sports car world because you know, you're used to me, me, me and wanting things done your way and wanting the car set up your way and everything done for you. And also you're used to competing against them. But all of a sudden, you know, they were helping me and I was helping them. But, you know, when you come from a single seater background, when, when your teammates trying to help you, you don't normally believe what they're telling you. You, <laughs> think, that they're, you think they're lying to you. So it took me a while to understand. Oh, actually, hang on a second. They're, they're actually, they're actually, they're you know, saying the truth here. Um, but they were great. And I, I, you know, it was an absolute breath of fresh air. Yeah.
3: Because your first, talk about your first Le Mans, because that was actually a very successful weekend for you. But a lot of Formula One drivers, because you're, you're so in the Grand Prix bubble, when they turn up to Le Mans, they kind of go, wow, this is massive. This is bigger than I thought it would be. I mean, did you have an appreciation of, of Le Sartre before you went?
1: I mean, I've been watching Le Mans, and obviously I knew what Le Mans was, and I did have an appreciation of how, you know, I was a big fan of Derrick Bell, still a big fan of Derrick Bell, um, you know, and and the Group C era of cars were fantastic. But you're absolutely right. I don't think when you come from the single-seater ladder, you don't really appreciate how big Le Mans is till you you go there. And for me, you know, being the first Indian to do Le Mans was really special. Uh, I remember... I'm not a particularly emotional person. The the two or three times in my career where I've been, I've, I've it's been really emotional for me. One was winning that GP2 race at Spa because that was the culmination of four years of really difficult times coming to an end. The second was, um, you know, second I must say was at Le Mans because when I left the pits during the race, I went. This is a bit of history here. Nobody can take this away from me. I'm the you know the first person to do this, and I got. I remember in the warm up actually getting up to the Dunlop Chicane, you go down the hill and and to the right hand side, near the bridge there, there's a campsite with a load of Indian flags. And I thought, all of those people have come because of me. You know, there's no other Indian on this grid here. It's kind of cool that this whole bunch of tents, people have come from God knows where, I never had the time to go see them, but they all had the Indian flags on the top of their tents. And I was like, that's really cool. And you know, we had 30 or so journalists had come over from India to cover the event. And it was a big story, but also at Lamar uh, I don't know if you know this, but they play the national anthem of every single driver. And, um, you know, when they play the Indian national anthem before the start, it was a it was a real sort of goosebumps moment for me. Um, and I think the, uh, yeah, just to finish up, I think the only other emotional time I've had in a race car is when I drove Mansell's 14B because, you know, that was a car I grew up watching. So, yeah, driving that at Silverstone was pretty amazing.
2: So how did you get your head around uh, Le Mans? Because um one of the things I always used to do as a matter of routine was take a bicycle with me, and on the Friday, I'd always cycle the lap of the circuit, and the first part of the circuit' it's, you know it's, it's like a racetrack, and then you kind of turn right at the end of the Straight, Strait. and then suddenly you know you're bloody on the run down to Indianapolis, and it's even on a bicycle it, <laughs> it feels bloody narrow. Um, I mean how, how did you kind of get get your head around the whole, the whole nature of the place?
1: just an amazing circuit. Um, we, it was a weird Le Mans um, that year because it had rained a hell of a lot all the way through the week. And we were struggling with the balance of the car and the conditions were really tricky and we, we didn't really get a, a happy balance on it through the week. And only when we got to the race the car started to, you know, as the track rubbed up, it started to come towards us. But it meant that the team ended up using either peter or david who knew the circuit and knew the car to set it up more so i i only did i think in the race week i only did something like 10 or 12 time laps before the race i obviously did did my you know laps of the test but i hadn't actually done a lot of laps i remember before the race um it was only in the race that i sort of got into it and and really started enjoying it but you know it's right up there it's it's one of it's got to be one of the top five circuits in the world Um, for a driver to drive on you know it's it's an amazing amazing circuit and there's something in it for everybody there's high speed low speed bank corners um, places to overtake you know it's it's such a challenge and then you got the track conditions that you know you got 30 degree swing and track temperature even and things like that so yeah it's an amazing experience but i remember the um, in the middle of, I was in the night. I don't know how, but I've done Le Mans now five times, but every time I've ended up with a graveyard shift, and I don't know why that happens, <laughs> it, and, and it's all with different race engineers as well, but they always end up putting me in for the, the you know, it's like they've talked to each other, I don't get it, but it's sort of that 1am, 2am till, you know, 5, 6 in the morning through the night, uh, which means basically you've been awake since midnight until 6 in the morning. Um, I've ended up with it every time, but, that first year, I remember on the run down to Indianapolis, the, the straight you're talking about, and there was one lap where there was just this cloud of smoke, and I thought, ooh, somebody's blown up there. It must be a load of oil or something, and engine's gone. And I backed out of it. And as I went through the kink, the, the right hand of Indianapolis, I thought, I can smell burgers. And basically, it was a campsite It <laughs> just lit this massive barbecue. The <laughs> smoke had wafted across the track. But, um, yeah, that was very funny. And I thought, this can only happen at Mans."
2: Just going back very briefly to Formula One, specifically the Indian Grand Prix, was it just a financial problem that, I mean, it was an, announced a great fanfare 2011, 2012, 2013, then stop.
1: Yeah, it was a private event, you know, and a bit like your situation here in the UK, it's not a gov- it wasn't a government no. funded event and ultimately you look at the calendar, I think it's just Suzuka, which is obviously a Honda, that's uh, and the and the British Grand Prix, isn't it? That are p- privately funded. I don't think any of the others are. They're all government funded races. And and ultimately, you know, the JP Group did an amazing job investing into the facility. They spent a fortune, you know, on the race for three years. They they probably spent, you know, over the call it a five year period between breaking ground in the track to running the races. They probably spent five hundred million dollars. Uh, which is a huge amount of money for a private company to spend with no government backing. At some stage, they got to go. Well, hang on a second. The government's not willing to back us in this and be our partner. It doesn't make financial sense. And you know, unfortunately, motorsport and and F one just didn't seem to to resonate with what the government wanted to do.
0: I mean, was India the right market? For, for that at the time as well, I, mean, I think
1: I think India was a was a fantastic opportunity and a fantastic market for Formula One. Seven teams picked up one race sponsorship deals. That doesn't happen when you go to the French Grand Prix or the German Grand Prix or, or even the British Grand Prix. You know there was there was lots of Indian companies who, who put a bit of money in. Um, there were, if you look at the car manufacturers involved in F1 at the time or, or now, frankly. You know, for them, India is a huge growth market, and still con- continues to be a great growth market. Whether it's a brand like Red Bull or you know sponsors, again, India is a great consumer market. So, I think it was an, it was an important race, and therefore one that F1 embraced. But also, and Simon, you you'll back me up here. You know, when we went to races like Istanbul, I remember 2007 being on the grid. I was on pole for the Sunday race. And my dad and I were standing on the grid and we looked at the grandstand and there were 11 people yeah. in the grandstand on Sunday morning for the race. You know, in contrast, the first Indian Grand Prix had 110,000 people there. You know, people forget India has and had a huge F1 fan base. The, the days of the, the Schumacher versus Hakkinen era made F1 explode across the country. Uh, you know, there's a huge fan following. So India already had a fan base, unlike china or baku or, or istanbul or these other places and um so therefore yeah it's i think india was was a good fit for f1 it's just a shame that financially the government weren't willing to back it
2: did the race's brief existence help raise the profile of of motor racing in general or or, or because of Hakkinen, and schumacher etc was it already at a reasonably high level
1: no it, it was very very powerful uh the first especially the first year and the first couple of years i should say you know, there's a huge amount of interest. Um, and unfortunately, that's died away as the race has gone away. You know, I think the absolute peak of interest in F1 uh, or, or in motorsport in general was that era, 2010 to 2012. Because, you know, you had Naren and myself who, d- who were driving in F1 around that time. Force India had just been taken over. You know, Vijay had just taken over Spiker and was starting to come good as well. Um, and we had the Grand Prix. You know, you had you know sort of four four pillars there to build an interest base in the sport and unfortunately since then you know we haven't had any other drivers come in um you know force india has now been taken over by by the canadian consortium so uh, and the race is gone so the level is the interest levels have just dipped away really
2: any chance of it coming back at any point or do you think that's it
1: Realistically, I don't think so. Um, you know, unless somebody in the government, uh, you know, we get a big progressive um, movement within the cabinet and the sports ministry to to bring the sport back and to bring the race back. Um, unfortunately, you know, there were plenty of opportunities. The racetrack itself was on the the highway to Agra, where the Taj Mahal is. You know, they could have done a, There's a lot of opportunity there to have done, uh, you know, co branded events, you know, for, for tourism and things like that, but but they never quite got that all off the ground.
0: And as far as I remember, I don't think the Indian government and the circuit organisers got off on the greatest foot after the event. There was some kind of financial attacks. No,
1: uh, I there. mean essentially, it's, it's a long story, but basically there was a taxation issue which had implications for all the teams and the drivers and, and sponsors and FOM, uh, a lot of those cases are still pending and still ongoing. So, um, you know, yeah, it's- I guess it's, we're not going to see it returning then. No, I, I don't think it's, uh, it's, uh, unle- as I say, unless the government have a change of heart and get behind the sport, I don't see it happening again. Unfortunately, it's a, it's a real shame.
2: Oh, you mentioned earlier, you, you've you got a management role with the, the Mayinis, uh, Arjun and Kush. Um, are there any many other sort of indian kids who've caught your caught your eye coming up through karting or junior categories
1: well obviously those two um, you know i think they're, they're both talented kids um, you're
2: their manager you would say that obviously <laughs>
1: um, but I, I think also jehan daravala who's uh, going to be racing fia f3 this year i think he's very good again you know i um, uh, you know i know him and his dad quite well and i i, I speak to them every couple of months and just just offer a bit of friendly advice, um, because I think uh, ultimately, you know, they they they're following a path that we've been along, coming from from the country that uh, you know doesn't have still the motorsport infrastructure of the West, although they've benefited from the infrastructure of karting and things like that, which we didn't mm. when Nareen and I came along. So they've already had a head start on us of probably seven eight years of driving. Um, you know, but I, I think you know th- there are a there are a handful of them around. Um, you know, Jehan's going to be with Prima which is a top team in fif Three, so he's got a great opportunity to have a good year and, and build on that. Um, so yeah, let's let's see how it pans out.
2: And one thing I definitely have to ask you about, I mean, away from all this modernism, um, you became a bit of a YouTube star last year with your ridiculously loopy lap of Goodwood in a McLaren M1. Just talk us through that. I was wondering where you were going with that <laughs> there
1: for a second. I was like, oh, is there some video I haven't seen? <laughs> um, I, I love going to Goodwood. It's a proper old school circuit. I mean, but every year I do get there and think, what are we doing? You know, this is just mad. I speak to people like Dario Franchitti who's a good friend of mine and go, you know, he tells me the story of his Jaguar E-type accident and I just go, what am I doing? Why, why am I bothering with this it, it's not it doesn't you know it's not something you have to do but it's something we love doing and um, I, I I it's such a fun event the track is a proper old school circuit and driving these old cars I mean we're, we're lucky aren't we Simon we've got such a great, rich history in the sport and I think it's really important to embrace that history uh, I enjoy driving the old cars um, you know that's why I get, got involved with Williams Heritage you know not just from the driving standpoint but from the business standpoint because it's Part of it is is showing off these old cars and telling the story of these old cars. Uh, driving the um, M1A McLaren was a hell of an experience. I don't think the steering wheel was straight even for, for one second. Uh, it was wheel spinning in every single possible gear. Um, but great fun. Uh, I think, uh, you know the The gearbox broke on the out lap <laughs> of of practice qualifying, so the first lap I drove the car in at Goodwood. I I did I did about fifteen laps at Donington just to drive it, uh, the, but the first lap I did was in the first lap of the race, <laughs> and uh, uh, we ended up with fastest lap at the end of it. So it wasn't too bad having started at the back of the grid, but um, yeah, the car owner is very keen to go back this year. So hopefully, uh, hopefully, Charles March will. Invite us back, and uh, we can have a bit of fun. But I'm going to do the, the members' meeting for the first time, which I've never been to. Uh, I'm told it's normally freezing cold and snowing.
2: Last year, last year it was, yes, absolutely. Yeah, Steve Soper
1: told me to carry my thermals and all sorts and go along. So
2: Fireproof thermals.
1: Yeah. Uh, so, yeah, no, I'm looking forward to that. Um, now, Goodwood's great fun, and you get a real appreciation. And, and actually, I'm in the middle of reading um, the David Tremaine's Jim Clark book, and uh, you know, there's some amazing pictures. I don't know if you've seen. There's a, some amazing pictures of of the Can-Am cars racing at Goodwood back in period, as as well as obviously the F1s, things like that. And uh, and to think that actually the circuit kind of looks the same, even now.
2: Yeah, it's, it's a pity. There's a lot of the photographs that were taken at Goodwood in the 50s and the 60s. They're magnificent, but you can't take them now because we're no longer allowed to stand on the inside with our cameras, which is where a lot of the yeah, you know, the, the really epic shots of cars right. drifting, they, 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 they won't let you do it. But, um, I mean, the reason I ask you about the McLaren is we had a chat, you and I had a chat at Silverstone last uh, June, whenever it was, when you, Mark Webber and um, Susie Wolfe did the demo in the old cars. And I said to you, you know, what about racing something like this at Goodwood? and you said nah, I'm not so sure about something like this maybe an Austin Westminster maximum 90 brake horsepower and then 3, yeah. mu- three months later look at youtube and hey hang on I know That's a McLaren M1. I, I normally <laughs> like doing
1: the St Mary's trophy because the cars are are not extraordinarily powerful but they're great fun uh, and it's right, you know in a mini or something like that or you know Austin A35 or something they're not they're not stupidly quick but um yeah the opportunity came to do this and I went, I said to my wife I was like it's a bit quick and a bit dangerous i'm not sure i should do it
2: yeah and you're five months pregnant and blah blah blah, blah. yeah
1: (laughs) but equally you just can't say no can you 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 just you just can't say no so uh yeah and it looks like i'm going to go back again this year as as
0: well (laughs) for for my sins that's brilliant um i I mean, uh, such an absorbing talk and, and and we'll have more of that at the F1 season preview evening uh, in March, March 6th or 9th, God. Eighth. March 8th, he's so professional He's, he's not hosting yet. We're not I'm even so gonna smart. retake that one. That's <laughs> just awful. Um, I just get, uh, we've got footman James on board in classic and sports finance. Um, and of course, a lot of our readers will look forward to seeing you there where you'll regale us with more of your amazing stories and uh, preview the season ahead. And I, I just wish we had more time in this podcast because I guess we've got to plan a few more. Um, uh, you know, um, but thank you, Karen, for joining us, and uh, thank you, Simon and Rob. Uh,
2: Pleasure. Thank you, thank very, you much. very much.
0: Thank you. Great. Fantastic. <laughs>